Good morning. If you're not normally with us or you're new with us here at City Church, my name's Chris. I'm one of the ministry apprentices at City Church. Um, and let me just add to Mark's welcome. It is great to see you all here with us this morning. Most TV shows or movie plots have an individual who will do anything to succeed. In Recess, the animated show I watched when I was a kid, a little boy called Randall ran around the playground and went and told the teachers anything he could to get others in trouble. He would sacrifice any chance of friendship with his peers to be seen with greater affection from the teachers. Or in Harry Potter, Draco Malfoy is a similar character. There is a weaseliness about his character. There is a sense of trickery. He will say anything or do anything that gives him the upper hand. If you're a Suits fan, it's Daniel Hardman. He does whatever underhanded thing he can to get back at Jessica and Harvey. He will try to charm whoever he can and tell them what they want to hear. These individuals value themselves and their well-being more than anything else in the world. All these characters at some point pay lip service. They say one thing and do another. They do that to the people around them in order to come out on top, to look better than the people around them. And while we think of those people in TV shows and movies as people we wouldn't associate ourselves with, we do the very same thing to God. We pay lip service to God and to others for our own it's easy for us to sit and criticize these characters but don't we find ourselves doing it too we exaggerate our success in order to get someone's admiration we play down our feelings so that someone thinks well of us we tell a boss what he or she wants to hear because we know it will be good for our career we stay silent in the lecture theater when we disagree because of what people might think Why is that? Why does this lack of integrity seep into our everyday experience? I feel it, and I'm sure you do too. But where does it come from? It comes from fear. We fear the wrong things. We value the wrong things. Ecclesiastes 5.7 tells us that we should fear God. Where this lack of integrity, this lip service begins... Is from a fearing of the wrong things, valuing something or someone more than God. We will see how the author of Ecclesiastes shows us what valuing God above all else looks like and why nothing else satisfies. Our approach to God and what we trust reveals what we value most. If we value ourselves, our success, our own advancement more than anything else, then who knows what lengths we will go to in order to protect that very thing we value. You may not even be aware that someone has told you something just to please you. Maybe it's been that they like your cooking when really they haven't at all. Perhaps someone tells you that you're good at sport when the truth is that you really have no concept of the game. Maybe someone has told you that you can sing when really a chalkboard being scratched with a nail sounds a lot better. People say things that they don't believe just so we will think better of them. 
But what this really shows is that the person doesn't respect you enough to tell you the truth. And maybe we are guilty of doing this to our friends, our family. Maybe we've experienced this being done against us. But we are all guilty of doing this to God. We pray prayers and tell God what we think he wants to hear. We speak out of a desire to to please God, but not fully believing what we say. The first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5 reveal that we should value God. We're going to look at two things. We're going to see what valuing God above all else looks like. And why fearing something more than him, in these verses it's wealth and honor, doesn't ultimately work. Here in Ecclesiastes 5, the author addresses this issue with some helpful advice that we can benefit from today. The writer of Ecclesiastes is encouraging us towards a fear of God instead of anything else. He is showing us what this fear, what this valuing of God above all else looks like. We're being encouraged to value God above all else because of what we read in verse 2. God is in heaven. And we are on earth. There is an obvious distinction that God shows us to help us value him over anything else that may come to steal our allegiance to God. What does this look like? How do we go about fearing the Lord? Well, verse 1 tells us to guard our steps as we enter the house of God. The author of this book is calling us into an accountability before God. We are to conduct ourselves in a certain way. We naturally tend to value people and things other than God. To focus on ourselves, to believe that everything revolves around us. And these verses show us that that our tendency is to rush into worship. We rush into worshiping God with lip service because we want God to hear us. We want others to hear us as well. We see this as a reality, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, also in verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Jesus told a story about two guys. They were both going to the temple one day. One of these men was a Pharisee. He thought highly of himself, a really holy guy. The other guy was a tax collector. Not really admired by many of the people that he came in contact with. Not considered to be all that holy. They both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stands at the front and prays loud enough for everybody to hear. Paying lip service to the Lord. Saying one thing, but believing and living another. Not feeling the need to repent of his sin but instead declaring his thanks that he's nothing like the sinful tax collector. Then we have the tax collector, humbling himself before God and repenting of his sin. And he's at the back, in the corner, meaning exactly what he says and understanding that God is God and he is but a fallen and sinful man. I read something on Twitter the other day and it was quite profound and hit me. It says, sometimes the holiest thing we can do with our mouths 
is to keep them shut. We didn't come to church this morning to show everybody how great we are, but we came to proclaim how great God is. We're told in verse 3 that our words should be few. Why? Again, it's that distinction because God is in heaven and we are on earth. What does this mean? Why does the writer of Ecclesiastes draw out distinction here? Well, our value system causes us to think too much of ourselves. We need this distinction. We shouldn't be longing for people to hear us, to build ourselves up, to have people think that we are something that we really aren't. We should be seeking to make more of Christ and less of ourselves. There's a striving for humility here. We are in no position to be the ones saying things to God that we do not really mean. Why do we raise our hands in worship when our hands cause us to sin throughout the week? Why do we sing as loud as we can on a Sunday when our mouths speak of vulgarity and sin with our non-Christian friends, our work colleagues? Why do we try to convince God and others that we're holier than we actually are? I think it's because we've forgotten that God is God and we are not. All those things that we say in front of people to make us look better, that doesn't work with God. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows all things. He knows when we're not being honest to him. He knows when we're just saying things to try and please him, to please others, when we think that's what God wants to hear. We are valuing ourselves more than we value God. Ecclesiastes is a really helpful book of instruction on how to live Live a God-fearing life, a life that values God above all else. And as we're reading in verse 4 here, of vowing to God, we're thinking back to, to the book of Deuteronomy, God's giving different laws to Israel, one of which was essentially vow and pay up or don't vow at all. God does not take pleasure in empty promises. I believe we need to extend this truth beyond just being a little church thing and understanding it as an everyday life thing. Extending it to everything that we say we will do for friends, for family, our spouses, our employers. We know that as believers we're called to live lives that reflect the glory of God. God is a promise-giving and promise-keeping God. We should reflect that in our promises to others. I remember using I promise as a bargaining tool with my parents when I was younger. I promise I'll tidy my room if I can finish watching this TV show. Or I promise I'll work harder in school this term. Probably the one my dad relates with most is I promise I'll pay you back. The reality of those promises being fulfilled was fairly slim. What about all those things you promise to your children? And then the day gets busy or it starts to rain, and you can't commit to it. And you hear those words, but you promised. Is it a habit of yours to not meet deadlines? Does your boss have to chase you up on work that you're meant to have done? These are real life examples. But the reason we don't keep our promises is because we fear the wrong things. We value ourselves And we want to have the benefits without having the responsibilities. How many times have 
you told your, your husband, your wife, someone you live with, <clears throat> your college roommates, you know, maybe, oh, I'll fix that. Or how many times have you um, told one another, um, you're going to be more sensible about your spending than you go and enjoy a cheeky little impulse buy. I'm always guilty of that. I tell Leah, I tell my friends that I'm trying to be more sensible with my money, with my spending. And then I do silly things like I'll never bring a packed lunch into the city. I'll always get a chicken fillet roll um, or something to that effect. You know, I, I buy things that I really, I would like, but I really don't need. And as we, as we confessed earlier, it's a part of a confession time for me as way of illustration. On Monday night, I nearly bought a GoPro-style camera. You know, all the attractions were there. Leah's looking at me with glaring eyes. It came with a waterproof case. It was reduced in price. It was free shipping. I thought, if I could get this, my life would be so much better right now. But what stopped me was my, my promise that I would be more sensible with my spending. We should, be people that, we should be people that keep our promises to one another, but ultimately to God. When we repent of our sin, we are making a promise to God. We're promising that we want to turn away from that sin and to trust more in Him. To rely more on Him than on, on our own ability. To take pleasure in Him more than in our own enjoyment. We make promises to God as a bargaining tool. When the struggles in life come, when life gets tough, we tell God that we'll do something or we'll stop doing something if he just sorts out this mess in our lives. And in those moments, we genuinely mean what we say. But the next season of life comes along, the struggles pass, we think our promises don't really matter to God anymore. We should be pursuing the fulfillment of the promises we make to God. I know in the past that I've said something that I instantly regret. I didn't really mean it, or I did mean it, but it was pretty harsh, and I could have phrased it a different way. This isn't a new problem. We experience it now, and Israel was experiencing it. And as Solomon writes writes these thoughts, we say things that we really shouldn't. The message paraphrases verse 6 to say, don't let your mouth make a sinner of you. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what we're being shown here is that we speak what our heart is full of. If our heart is full of envy, our talk will be envious. If our heart is full of hatred, we will convey that hate in how we communicate with others. Our heart holds what we value most. We speak out of what we value most. And we've seen that in the first seven chapters of Ecclesiastes, first seven verses, sorry, of Ecclesiastes chapter five. We want God to approve of us. So we tell him what we think he wants to hear. It's not out of love for God. It's out of selfishness. It's out of a desire for ourselves to look better. We tend to get caught up in the people pleasing, the pleasing God, trying to get everybody, including God, to think well of us. But what we must remember is that we're told that this is vanity. God is the one 
we must fear. God is the one whom we should respect, whom we should revere. We should treat God as the holy and righteous God that he is. We do not fear man, we fear the Lord. God is the one we must value the most. Because when we have an appropriate view of God, when we know that God is greater than we are, well, our integrity becomes something that is honorable and something instead of something that is not. Our values of self turn towards a gratitude and humility before God. And we, we come together on this Sunday morning and we know that the society around us doesn't value God. They don't have time to even think about God. They don't have time to consider any of it. So what do they value instead? Well, the remaining of chapter 5, verses 8 to 20, show us that they value wealth and honor. Because ultimately they forget where wealth and honor come from. They come from God. And we'll see how the writer of Ecclesiastes directs us in a way that out of valuing God as the the most ultimate thing that we love, as the thing, as the person in our lives that we value the most, we will see how valuing wealth and valuing honor does not work. Frederick Nietzsche, a philosopher and outspoken atheist, had a theory that with the absence of God growing in Western culture, we would replace God with money. This is something that he said. What induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value? While three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud, what gives rise to all of this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious. But they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at at seeing their wealth pile Sorry, at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equally terrible longing and love of money. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and good conscience. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. The writer of Ecclesiastes precedes Frederick Nietzsche by 3,000 years and yet shares a striking, strikingly similar truth. God tells us in verses 8 and 9 that we are to expect corruption in our society. We shouldn't be surprised when we see the oppression of the poor, the injustice prevailing in our towns and in our cities. The reality is that the officials have another official watching over them and the injustice filters down through the system because everyone is out for their own gain. In the business world, there are many CEOs who portray all the psychological character traits of a psychopath. They are unwaveringly committed to their end goal, doing whatever it takes to achieve it, regardless of how it may affect anyone around them. When we lose sight of God 
as the one whom we value most, it leads us to find our value somewhere else. For most it is wealth and honor. But God shows us through this chapter that valuing him is better because these other things do not satisfy it. What do we value in the Western world? A quick buck for as little effort as possible. This is why your Facebook feed is filled with advertisements speaking of the Dublin woman who makes 30,000 euros a month or advertisements that come up alongside saying millionaires don't want you to know this secret. We've all seen these adverts. It's how to make money without working hard. And we feel, we feel that there's maybe something in that for us and we click the link. Then we think it looks like an awful lot of bother to do that, so we'll not do that. But there's a sense of idolatry there. We click, we're intrigued. We want to know how we can gain more with little effort. Our idols tell us that they are good things. But God's word tells us a very different story. Verse 10 tells us that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Honor and wealth never satisfy because you always want more. J.D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough money? And his reply was, just a little bit more. The truth is that it does not satisfy. We see in verse 11 that when the goods increased, so did those who wanted to take them away. The goods had no advantage to their owner as they watched them disappear. My dad has two brothers and a sister. And one of their brothers, their eldest brother, um, loved to keep his Easter eggs long after Easter. Um, He would eat little bits at a time and he would keep them on his shelf. But my dad and his other brother and sister um, devised a plan where they would open the Easter egg box, they would take the Easter egg out, unwrap it really carefully, break the egg in half and eat the back half and then fold it up again and put it back in so it looked like there was still Easter egg there. (laughs) They thought they had it all sussed. Graham, my uncle, He thought he had it all sussed. I'm going to keep my Easter eggs there and I can enjoy them when everybody else has long eaten their Easter eggs. This is very similar um, to what we see in verse 11. As the reality is, the more you have, the more people will come and try and take it away. With wealth and with honor comes a crippling weight of pressure. When wealth and honor are what we value most, then they motivate everything we do. Family comes second. Friends try to hold you accountable and quickly become acquaintances and memories because you don't want that hindrance. And when you're at the top, there's really only one way you can go. But what does verse 12 tell us? What does it say about our work ethos? It tells us that those who are hardworking will be content. Whether they have a little or whether they have a lot, they will sleep well. But the full stomach of the rich, the gluttony, the unfulfilling nature of making money will keep them awake at night. This follows what we've just read in verse 11 because it reveals that desiring wealth and honor, it'll, it'll cause stress. 
It causes worry and anxiety, and it does not benefit us. If we value our wealth and honor more than we value God, then the words here from the writer of Ecclesiastes tell us that we're going to get hurt. We have an example here of riches that were kept by an owner to his hurt, lost in a bad business venture. And the reason that this hurts so much is because that's what they valued most. So when they lost it, they were losing the very thing that they valued most in their life. When we value something that can be taken away, something that can be lost, something more than we value, more than we value God, then we will always end up being disappointed. And money, money and honor may not be what you value most. It may be your family. It may be your husband or your wife. It may be your appearance, your intellect, your authority. We can fill our value systems with lots of different things. But if we don't value God most, then we are always at risk. And it's only a matter of time before we lose it all. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Mark shared a story with us two weeks ago that has been ringing in my ears this week as I prepared. And it was about a man who had great wealth. And this man passed away. His family gathering for the reading of his will. One family member asks with excited anticipation, how much did he leave? And the solicitor somberly replies, all of it. We cannot take our money, we cannot take our fame, our fortune, our beauty, our intellect, our greatest achievements, they cannot come with us when we die. Last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we looked at how death is inevitable. Man, like the beast, will die. And here we have a further reality of that truth. We cannot take anything with us. What causes us to value all this stuff? What causes us to want to have more money, more success, more of everything? It's the same message we've been looking at throughout. We value the wrong things. And in doing so, we forget who gives us these things. God gives us everything we have. But when we value ourselves, our wealth, our honor, more than him, we quickly forget where these things come from. So where are we? What have we seen? We've seen that fearing things or people other than God causes us to have a lack of integrity. That we will do whatever it takes to pursue them. And we've seen that if we don't fear God, if we don't value God, one of the greatest contenders for our ultimate value is going to be that of wealth and honor. And how that simply does not work. The writer shows us the vanity of pursuing one of our society's biggest idols. But is this where God leaves us? No. After Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, the one who wrote these words to show us time and time again that looking for fulfillment, valuing anything more than God, is chasing after the wind. It's vanity. After this man, and to much praise of God, there was one who came who was the embodiment of wisdom. One that was never double-minded, who never said one thing and melted another. Never said what people wanted to hear. 
And who feared his heavenly father even when it meant dying on a cross. Jesus is the one who died for our empty words. Our unfulfilled promises. He takes those empty words and cries, it is finished. Jesus takes our empty actions. And he says, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He takes our hollow and our flaky promises and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the one who renews our hearts with a new value system. And that's what liberates us to do what it says in verses 18 to 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. When wealth and possessions are no longer the ultimate things in life, whether we're rich or poor, we can take pleasure in what we have been given. Where does your value lie this morning? Does it lie in your own ability? Does it lie in your success, your job, your marriage? What do you value most? God is the only one worth valuing. We've seen this this morning, that when God is our ultimate value, the one we esteem most, everything else falls into place. We can enjoy everything that God has given us when we keep him as number one. When we fully believe that he is our ultimate value, we will appreciate his generosity and we will continue to live in a God-fearing, God-valuing way. We are a community of believers that gather on Tuesday nights at different times through the week on Sunday mornings. And we are really intentional in those moments to make much of Jesus and less of ourselves. But as I said earlier, this is a lot more than just a church thing. There's a challenge for us as we go about our daily lives to be intentional in our colleges, in our workplaces, in our houses, to show those around us that we value God more than we value any other thing. This is something that the world finds so shocking. Why would we only have one allegiance? Why would we only have a lead? Why would we why would we not hedge our bets and try to make the most of every situation? Why wouldn't we try to advance ourselves? Because our lives are entirely devoted to Jesus. God is the one we value most. We become countercultural. And we can use those countercultural moments to engage in meaningful conversation, to share with people why God is worth being the one who we value most and that everything else really comes and plays second fiddle because it won't fulfill, it won't give us what we want. But as we see time and time again through Ecclesiastes, as Mark said earlier, this test crash series of things that we think will fulfill but ultimately don't, God fulfills where all of this will not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your justice, your mercy. We thank you that you are worth valuing. And Father, as a community of believers, help us to do that with greater intention, with greater desire. 
that the world around us will see something so different. And that as we value you above all else, that will change our lives, that will change our communities. And we will be forever grateful for your work. For shouting Jesus. For the fulfillment of all promises. Fulfillment of everything we need. Everything we long for. God, we thank you that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We ask for your help, God, your guidance to value you more than anything else. Father, we pray that you will strengthen us, that your Holy Spirit working in us will keep us from giving our allegiance over to anything else, and that we will always ultimately value you above all else. Heavenly Father, thank you for Chris's words and for um, reminding us of the importance of coming to you and being wise with our words and and, uh, being humble in your presence. And I pray that we can be fully thankful to you for all the gifts that you've given us and that the humility and the the happiness that knowing that you have given us through your son all that we need Mm. will give us the strength to be able to look after each other as a church group be able to support each other and build each other up in the image of your son glorify you pray that here on an Esther and today kids can be strengthened up in you as they go through trials and tribulations and that they can come out the other side closer to you and be able to spread your grace through the knowledge and understanding that they gain pray for our country as our government struggles that we can we can see more of you in political matters and economic matters and educational matters as as the world becomes more secular, particularly in Ireland. We pray that we can do a good job of of returning your grace and knowledge of you (coughs) to the people of Ireland. My boss was telling me the other day that Cardinal Newman, who set up UCD, set it up with the view that nothing that you can ever do can ever disprove God and that higher education should be there so that the greater knowledge that we gain should bring us closer to the Lord so that a knowledge and excellence of everything in this world would bring you closer to the Lord instead of bringing you farther away in the sciences and humanities and I pray that 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 focus in all matters in society can return and that we can play a part in that and grow and support one another in practical ways as well as through prayer Uh, also pray for those who live in impoverished countries and in war-torn areas, particularly for migrants who are trying to make their way across the oceans and flee from flee from conflict, that we can support those people and share our wealth and, and uh, live Christian lives on a global scale as well as on a smaller scale in spreading the, the word of God throughout Dublin. Ask these things in your, in your son's name. Amen. We've been responding to what we've heard in prayer. We're going to respond in in two more ways. The band are going to come up and we're going to to sing just one more song. Uh, 
And the other way that we're going to respond is we're going to take up a, uh, an offering, a collection. Uh, that is for those who consider City to be uh, their home. If you are a guest, and I know that some of you are, please feel free to be our guest. Let the bag pass you by without embarrassment unless you wish to contribute, uh, but there is no obligation laid upon you to do so. Uh, for us, uh, we're going to stand. We're going to sing our final song, uh, Blessed Be Your Name.
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. As we remain standing, we reflect on the words of Paul, another man who had his life changed by Jesus when he writes and says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat, everyone. That's the end of our formal time together. Please do stick around um, for tea or coffee. Uh, As Killian prayed, we've been praying for for Kieran and Esther and the family. For those of you who don't know who that is, uh, Kieran is uh, the other pastor here at the church. He's had to take some time off, some compassionate leave, uh, because his sister-in-law, Esther's sister, is uh, is unwell and is in a psychiatric hospital undergoing evaluation, and we've been praying for them. Uh, by way of update, uh, they're spending some time uh, up north where where she's at this week, but he also sent a message uh, just this morning to say that his sister, uh, his sister Lydia, uh, has given birth to a little girl, uh, to Lillian or Lily, Lily Redmond. Uh, was born last night at 11.15, weighing 7 pounds and 13 ounces, and mother and baby are doing well. So, um, there's been lots of difficulty in their life, and we continue to pray for them as they undergo their trial, Uh, but why don't we conclude our time by giving thanks for this new life? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the safe arrival of Lily Redmond, and we pray uh, that she would grow up to know and to love you, to value you above all things. And we pray for Kieran and Esther as they uh, become an aunt and an uncle uh, for the first time, uh, that they would uh, be a, a good and godly influence into that household. Father, please would you be with them and comfort them and give them wisdom as they travel north again to, uh, to minister and to provide comfort and support to Esther's family as well this week. Uh, We remember them and we commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The final thing to say is that we have community groups meeting on Tuesday. Uh, One meeting in, uh, uh, I was going to say the wrong one, in Dustin and Kerry's home, uh, which is around Whitehall, Beaumont area. You can talk to them. They're sitting at the back. Or the details are on our website, citychurchdublin.ie. Or the other group is in Drumcondra. Uh, where Dave and Melissa's apartment's at. If you've never been to Community Group and you'd like to come along, uh, come and grab me afterwards and I can point you towards details. Those are all our announcements. We have tea and coffee at the back. It was lovely to see you all this morning. Thank you.